This evening we'll begin our Dhamma exploration with some discussion about the paramis. And then we'll look uh, deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of heart and mind. And we'll also touch into, uh, briefly touch into all the other paramis as well. And so beginning with a story, whoop, not yet, sorry. Beginning with discussion of the paramis. <laughs> so what, what is a parami? Paramis are the accumulated forces of the purity within the mind, the purity within the heart. Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed, free of anger, free of hatred, free of delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of (coughs) these forces of purity within the mind and heart. One of the root roots of the word parami conveys a sense of supreme quality. And in Sanskrit, the word paramita means going toward something. Going towards supreme quality. Going toward perfection. There are two... Uh, illuminating etymologies regarding this word for perfection, parami. Often the word parami is translated as perfection. And the first is regarding param, which indicates carrying one across to the further shore. And the second etymology is related to parama, which implies the importance in formulating the purpose of one's life. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed, and I'll list those in Pali and in English. Dana, generosity. Sila, or virtue. In English, ethical behavior, virtue, sila. Nekama, renunciation, panya, wisdom, virya, energy, effort, kanti, patience, saka, truthfulness, aditana, a resolve or determination, metta, loving kindness, and upekka, equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us, the accumulation of the 
qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience, the accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort, energy, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become very forceful and result in many forms of happiness, many forms of contentment, and a a sense of well-being in relationship to the most basic worldly, sensual pleasures, all the way through to the very highest, the most refined happiness of the awakened, the liberated mind-heart. The development, growth, and maturation of these perfections, these forces of mind and heart, help to counter the forces that cause us human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities in our lives and in our mind and heart, they're not to be undervalued or thought of as not really all that important. Sometimes people think, oh, well, they're not really the real practice. This aspect of training the mind is really essential. It's powerful and it's necessary. It's a necessary aspect of our practice of moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow and deepen and get more and more refined, They're incredibly powerful causes for all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, the heart of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, the purity of action, our way of being in the world, conduct in its everyday worldly aspects. And these paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy, in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, to the purity of understanding, insight, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the very deepest liberating kind. 
This second aspect of the perfections includes the paramis of panya, wisdom, patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are interrelated. And so bring each other to light over and over and over again. The development of these forces of purity in the mind are an important aspect of the foundation for the attainment of liberation. The attainment of freedom to whatever degree is in part the perfectly natural result of the development of these very strong powers of the purity of mind and heart. We could say that the development, the refinement, and the eventual attainment of the paramis is the fulfillment of the cause to gain the Dhamma. Our practice itself, in its process, is the practice and the process of purification, as has been mentioned uh, quite a number of times in this retreat. The path of practice, this practice of purification, this path of practice that leads one toward liberation, vipassana, insight, and samatha, concentration, and of course, other specific practices as well. The Brahma-vihara practices, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, all of this is part of the path of purification. The development of the paramis organically, naturally, occurs within the context of all of these practices. And in light uh, uh, of the fact that you will soon be moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world, and considering our everyday life right here in this intensive retreat setting, bringing the paramis more and more to the forefront of one's daily life, in whatever setting you're in, can be quite helpful and fruitful. It can really be quite a potent aspect of our practice. The paramis are, of course, to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family and one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and the potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that they're something to work towards, something to practice towards benefiting others, with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So, 
No greed, no hatred, no delusion. Which, of course, without a doubt, is of great benefit for everyone and ourselves very much included. The word parami used in relationship to a particular person or persons refers to one who does wholesome deeds in a very pure, with a very pure and genuine motivation to help others and to help themselves, as in practicing the Dhamma to gain liberation. As we move towards this little by little through our practice, as we practice the Dhamma to gain liberation, it's really quite okay and actually necessary to have self-interest. This is a wholesome self-interest. In pursuing the Dhamma in this way, as I think all of you understand, there's really no harm done in relationship to others or in relationship to ourselves. Traditionally, the practice, the development, and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. So just I'll just list them once again. Dana, generosity, sila, virtue, ethical behavior, nekama, renunciation, panya, wisdom, virya, energy, effort, kanti, patience, saka, truthfulness, aditana, resolve, or determination. Metta, loving-kindness, and upekka, equanimity. And so, a story now. (laughs) Some years ago, uh, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, as the resident uh, teacher for staff, there uh, were times when I would uh, go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, uh, which isn't very far from IMS, uh, to pay a visit to my friend, Venerable Mahagosananda. And certainly some of you may uh, know of him. His name translates as Maha, great, and Gosananda, the sound of bliss. Maha, as he was fondly called, uh, was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and villages and in the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago at approximately the age of 94. 
and he'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt to me like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare. A being with a truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, uh, a sweet and very deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his uh, quarters to say hello. And we really, at that point, didn't know each other very well. And we hadn't seen each other for about a year. So I actually didn't know if he would remember me. Being such an old man at that point, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him uh, the last time we had met, and I asked him if he remembered me. (laughs) And his response was, Oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And I burst out laughing, and I said, Well, must be quite a nose. And he very directly and very sweetly said, responded, it's a good nose. During a three-month retreat uh, that I was teaching at IMS, uh, not very long after that Colorado retreat uh, that I uh, taught with Venerable Mahagosananda, I visited uh, Venerable Gosananda during that three-month retreat at one point at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who actually used to call me Mum. And at one point I asked him why he called me Mum, when in fact he was so much older than me. And he responded by saying, we have all been each other's mothers at some point, and so you are Mum. So that day, uh, when I visited him at the, at the Peace Pagoda, Mum and grandfather sat and drank tea and we laughed a little bit, talked a little bit about the history of his life, and we talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which was certainly Venerable Mahagosananda's most favorite topic. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift uh, that opened and lightened the heart and the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered simply through being, through his being. Or actually, maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and then afterwards. My heart felt like it filled my whole body, like it filled my whole being and then on outwards. And an experience that would always continue for some time 
beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, the two monks and uh, one of the nuns that lived there with Maha uh, filled the back of my car with large bags of Thai rice and tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to the three-month yogis. They said they wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity and compassion occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we all are sitting here together this evening. So moving from a pretty recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient uh, Buddhist legend, a tale that displays uh, a number of paramis, in particular uh, generosity and virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling of this story is adapted from the tale as told by Rafe Martin. It's said that many Mahakalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Buddha Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India and offer an evening of public talks revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored. And to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village and then to cover it with fine cloth. In the forest, just outside this village of Amravati, lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness and physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and much virtue and vigor. And he was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later lifetime was to be uh, the future Buddha, our Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that young Sumedha thought, my family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day... I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I remain idle? No. I will leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, 
and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and he gave his money, all of his money to the poor and he entered into the forest life of a hermit eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. And within a short time, he gained a very profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara's, <clears throat> Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the activity in the town. And it's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth, he said. Venerable Sumedha replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dapankara is approaching the village? Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. He immediately then came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman with the road and he picked a particularly swampy stretch of low ground to fill in. He worked with his heart and mind filled with light and joy, repeating to himself over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to uh, finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha, the Pankara, was approaching. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending out from the Buddha Dipankara and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here is one who has attained all wisdom. Here is one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it. Loosening and spreading his long matted hair, he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I am determined. Despite all the difficulties and all the danger, I'll never turn back. I am resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and to benefit all beings. 
Well, the next moment, the Buddha Dipankara arrived at the spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. And in many Mahakulpas and in world, world cycles from now, he'll become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama. When he becomes a young man, he'll see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. And then, with renewed strength and energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, (laughs) became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta, and then continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity, filled with joy and strength of purpose. It said that he again rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering, but in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving, a process which clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of this heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed, clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. 
generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, we receive really the seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and so deeply practiced, cultivated, and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. My four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area and with a very big and bright smile on his face, he thrusts a bunch of yellow, bright yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China on my 46th birthday. The friend that I was uh, traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with the Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I learned uh, that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experiencing some degree, a fair amount of degree actually, of clinging and attachment, I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though, at that point, feeling uh, like a one-handed giver during my consideration of doing this, and then finally deciding to do it. By the time it came for me to uh, actually give her the gift, it was with both hands and with an open heart. It was really, truly a joy at that point. Though in the process of getting there, it was very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And finally, all the conditions come together. But one week before the retreat begins, she calls me to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have a very inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car and hands it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even actually if I can receive 
this gift. And then my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And another voice, I'm cold. And then the child is led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of summers ago now, fire raged in the Los Alamos Española area here in New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families uh, were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of compassionate generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. The needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together, and so you both give this gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as your retreat unfolds. And maybe at times during this retreat, you're moving ever so slowly and you don't feel pushed or hurried by anyone to speed up. Another gift given and received. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. And as they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child 
standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother and seeing this ritual, this offering each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a natural part of your life. And from the Buddha, from the Itivutaka. If beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what was really a way of life. In speaking to his sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't so easily available in this country, which at least in part is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what is offered in support of a way of life. nor do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance and through that process reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And, to the contrary, this retreat has been really quite special and quite wonderful in this regard with so many meals generously offered as dana. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and accumulate and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations, and the accumulation of ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole 
materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations, to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I think that it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, towards knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. And a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye from a book called uh, Different Ways to Pray. And this was uh, written in Colombia in 1978. And she calls this poem Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened bra. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian and white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is you who I have, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture there's a deep 
quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think of as ours today could very well be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe even in some of the retreats that you've sat, my spot in the meditation hall, my seat in the dining room, my walking path. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything, everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, mindfulness, concentration, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the condition, through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held onto in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that, in fact, can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving. There's a short sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, and the, it's called Two People. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anathapindika's monastery. 
Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, and we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Tell us, Master Gotama, instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha responds, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. You have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. This world is on fire with aging illness, and death. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, three kinds of giving are spoken of. There's what's uh, been called beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, uh, so to say, uh, still holding on to what we have. It's still mine, which is how I first uh, began towards giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. And in this kind of giving, We might give the least of what we have, and afterwards we may even wonder whether we should have given it all. And the second kind of giving can be called friendly giving. We give open-handedly, with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and it feels appropriate to do so. It's a clear giving. Then there's what's called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of whatever has been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. And in this, there's no giving. There's just this spaciousness which allows Uh, objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. Eighth-century Buddhist monk Shantideva said this, Others are my main concern." When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. (coughs) 
there's nothing to be held on to in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. And some words from Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And as you well know, we don't always live with the purity and the completeness of queenly or kingly generosity. I think this is at least in part one of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, to honor and respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything to ourselves or to others by imitating or by acting out of some idealized image of what we might think uh, a generous and compassionate and loving person would be like. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect our limits along the way and really come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity and unconditional kindness and compassion when in fact we're acting maybe out of fear of loss or fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid directly dealing directly with a particular person or situation. And giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and perpetuates delusion, strengthening the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, which then in turn causes continued suffering in ourself and maybe in the other person as well. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not-self, that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here, meaning okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here you are. 
alive in this life. Without this, we can experience some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness and an inner lack. And if we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this must be respected. Otherwise, giving, sharing, and caring may be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet fully healed from the learned, the conditioned feelings of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourself away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way in what seems like generous support, but what may actually be unskillful giving or support of others. When this happens, we actually feel less whole, more depleted and weaker, which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness and ignorance of the real needs of others, along with the lack of awareness of our own needs. It's really important to understand, respect, and honor in ourself and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. In relationship uh, to this on the scale of, of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics and to endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate beauty. To leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our (coughs) okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level of life and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness and our 
inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and the compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to know and touch the freedom that, that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all things is also a perfectly natural inclination. I think that for many of us, at least one or all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. And looking at the practice of generosity from another perspective, just for a few moments. There's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves, and may not be able to ask for help or be able to receive it uh, graciously if it's offered. Receiving help, gifts, praise, even love can be quite difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, with joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically sick or distressed emotionally. So, the practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as being particularly valuable at all, something like a potato or a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand, and you pass it back and forth, from hand to hand to hand until it gets easy, until you don't feel like a fool anymore. And then you graduate to the higher practices if one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue this practice of generosity and relinquishment. And so one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving uh, symbolically develops into letting go of, into relinquishing, offering everything, all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, in uh, some years ago, I did this practice. But instead of precious jewels, Rice was the offering, which actually felt very appropriate. 
And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without all the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given, receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, mindful, and concentrated presence, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, with appreciation, humility, and with equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a focused, mindful and focused awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy, and that this is intimately connected to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all of these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi responded, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity are twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. And through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. So, closing the talk this evening with one more story. About 35 years ago now, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, he would come to the area of Michigan where I lived at that time to teach us. One year, I invited him to come and stay in my house a very small, old, five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. At that point, just one of my three sons and I were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and an old, well-used, smallish car pulled up in the driveway, and Wallace was the first one to get out. 
And he, uh, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he was quite a big man, about six foot three inches tall and very big boned. And he looked even bigger with his cowboy hat and cowboy boots. Uh, uh, And then it was like one of those cars that pull up in the circus in the middle ring and the doors open and people just keep pouring out of the car and one is totally amazed at how many people can fit into such a tiny car. So as my son and I watched, uh, seven people emerged from this tiny little car, Wallace's helpers and members of his family. And it turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And the thought came, well, how will we all live and sleep in this tiny house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived, and people would stop by in the afternoon to meet with and to to listen to Wallace as uh, he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 in the morning, a.m., I mean, after midnight. Then it was time at that point for a big dinner because no meals were to be taken through the afternoon and the evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During those 10 days, I had to let go of many, many of my preferences and habits, how I use the various spaces of my home, my usual schedule, the rhythms of my life, food preferences and lots of other preferences. Wallace and... One of the other members of his family smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. As I mentioned, people slept all over the house. And the day began quite late in the morning. And with the late-night sweat lodge ceremonies, 1 a.m. was dinner time. Every afternoon, the house was filled with 15 or 20 people coming by to listen uh, as Wallace shared the teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow, there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats, and there were bowls of food at the door or bowls of food left on the kitchen counter. And often, a friend and I would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And we all sat together in a circle. And each one of us was asked to share some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then after that, They offered my son and I some beautiful treasures that they had brought with them. In gratitude for us sharing our space and our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke. And he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy... It's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. 
If one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance, he said. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside uh, watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like watching a movie playing backwards. And then the two of us walked into the house and we stood there in amazement. The seeming great expanse of our home holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days, it just seemed to have shrunk. And yet somehow, our, uh, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And closing the talk with a poem by uh, a poet that I've read before, Mary Oliver. She calls this goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold in little towers, soft as mash, Sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes of it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far than is better than these light-filled bodies? All day, on their airy backbones, they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving away one's gold. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.